Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. The views, information, or opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals. This content is not intended to malign or disparage any organization, group, or individual. Hello, and welcome to True Crime Daily's The Sidebar, where we take you inside the courtroom of the most high-profile and notorious trials from across the country. I'm your host, Joshua Ritter, currently a criminal defense lawyer based here in Los Angeles. Previously, I was a prosecutor with the LA District Attorney's Office for close to a decade. We're recording this on Wednesday, September 22nd, 2021. Today, we are joined by Jennifer Bonjean, a seasoned attorney with extensive experience in criminal defense and civil rights litigation. She's also the lawyer largely responsible for overturning the sexual assault conviction of Bill Cosby. And today, as you might have guessed it, we're discussing the Bill Cosby trial. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you for having me, Josh. Thank you for coming on. Before we jump into Bill Cosby and all the drama and details behind all of that and how this case was one that truly captured the attention of the entire nation, I wanted you to tell us a little bit about your background and what your legal practice involves today. Sure. So uh, I've been an attorney for about 20 years and I have a boutique practice principally based in New York City, although I practice in a number of states, primarily the state of New York, the state of New Jersey and the state of Illinois. I went to law school in Chicago and I have maintained a presence there for many years. And I would say about 50 percent of my work is based in Chicago. Uh, I started as a criminal defense attorney doing appellate work uh, as a public defender uh, in Chicago. And then I moved to New York and started my own practice and migrated into more trial work and also post-conviction work. And that's where we primarily see uh, the reversals of convictions based on actual innocence, where we can bring new evidence before the court when someone has uh, compelling claims of innocence. And so I do a lot of wrongful conviction work. Um, I also, of course, represent Mr. Cosby, uh, which is one of the more high profile cases I've handled over the years. And uh, I continue to do appellate work and I also do civil rights litigation. So in addition to getting people's convictions reversed because of miscarriages of justice. I then go back and sue uh, the uh, law enforcement or the prosecutors sometimes um, who are responsible for those miscarriages of justice. And we also do police brutality cases. So we have a very, um, uh, I would say, uh, broad practice, but all very much focused in criminal defense, criminal justice and miscarriages of justice. And that was what I aimed to create. And I feel like we're doing a pretty good job of uh, seeing my vision through. Well, congratulations to you. And you've obviously had a tremendous amount of success. I was going to say that is that is certainly having your 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 spoon in a lot of different pots, because usually criminal attorneys kind of stick to one niche, one kind of little cottage industry thing that they're comfortable with. But to be able to handle appellate stuff and post-conviction and trial work and, and in several different jurisdictions, my hat goes off to you. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, absolutely. interesting. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm sure it does. I have, I have to memorize a lot of rules. And, and, and if you don't get the rules right, you know how it works, Josh. You get, you get in trouble with the courts. So. Oh, yeah. And and. And I'll say, too, I you know, we practice primarily in California, but we've done stuff out of state. But even in California, you know, upstate California from Southern California, 
you're in the same state courtroom system, but you might as well be in an entirely different jurisdiction altogether because it's just the way they operate, the way they, the the acronyms that they refer to things as. So I can imagine going from Illinois to New York and appellate and post-conviction and federal and state, it's got to be a lot to, to hold it all together. Yeah, and in the federal system, even judges have their own, each judge has their own peculiar uh, rules for their own courtroom. So yeah. yeah. It's a lot, yeah. but it keeps it interesting, and I and I actually enjoy it. It keeps my brain nice and uh, nimble. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. Let's give folks a quick understanding of of Cosby, the kind of the history of where things uh, are. Uh, I'm going to kind of lay out some dates and, and times here, but please feel free to jump in because you know this better than anybody. But his but his 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 initial the, the troubles that you got him out of just most recently started really back in January of 2004 with a woman named Andrea Konstad. And she worked for the Temple University women's basketball team. And she accuses Cosby of sexually harassing her at his home or assaulting her, pardon me, at her at his home after giving her some wine and pills that she stated later made her feel what she described as frozen. Skip forward to February of 2005. So over a year later, Montgomery County prosecutors in Pennsylvania decide not to charge Cosby, citing insufficient credibility and admissibility of evidence issues. Um, and the elected DA at the time, his name was Bruce Castor, said that he considered the case flawed because Constand waited over a year to come forward and for how she stayed in contact with Cosby after the alleged attack. And I know, having been a prosecutor myself, um, that this is something that prosecutors will 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 find issue with is that you know why was there such a lapse in time from the alleged crime to the reporting of it how much contact did the person have uh with them afterwards with their alleged attacker so it's it's not a huge surprise that this case was originally uh, rejected by their office one month later march of 2005 upon encouragement from this same uh, da miss constant sues mr cosby and it's September of 2005, in a deposition testimony uh, connected to that lawsuit, Mr. Cosby admits to obtaining quaaludes to give to young women for sex, and Ms. Constant's suit is later settled and both sign an NDA. Am I, am I getting this generally correct so far? You are getting it generally correct. I think I take a little bit of issue with the giving quaaludes for sex okay. expression. Okay. Um, I think that's that's a... That's a misconception, I think, that has been um, perpetuated in the media about what the correlation was because there's been some cherry picking of the uh, the deposition testimony. He admitted in his deposition that he would uh, offer quaaludes to women who he was sexually interested in. It, it, no, no, not that okay. different than what sometimes men do, and not all men, but you know, offer drinks to women that they are sexually interested in. In any event. Um, he is later questioned about whether he ever drugged women or gave women these uh, quaaludes against their will or without their consent. And he clarifies that, no, that's not what he was saying. But I, I just point that out because that's one of the big misconceptions about this case. No, and it's and it's an important distinction, too, that you're making is that and, and, and the reason why I described it the way I did is I am getting that from media reports. So the way they are describing it is as if he was obtaining it to give to them for the purpose of sex, and you're making the distinction now that he may have supplied them with drugs and he may have also been sexually interested, but it wasn't like a A led to B type situation. Right. Okay, yeah. fair fair enough. Thank you for the clarification. No, One no thing I, I did want to note though, is they did sign an NDA at that time. Is that right? Um, uh, when you say they, do you mean the women who later accused him? Or Miss Constant in particular. Yes. Okay. Well, she, there, well, let me say this. I, I, I don't know if I would call it an NDA as much as there was a, a robust confidentiality agreement associated with um, the deposition and all the proceedings that related to the civil case, where, which okay. we often see in civil cases. Absolutely. So, yes, there was there okay. was an agreement that that would remain confidential. Correct. Okay. And I wanted to make a point of that because that's going to become important later on. Um, so now flash forward t 10 years later or over 10 years later, 
And this was funny to me because also another thing I was not entirely aware of, but in October of 2014, during a comedy routine, a comedian, Hannibal Burris, refers to Cosby as a rapist. And there's a video of this routine that goes viral. And this is when the floodgates kind of open. Uh, people start coming out of the woodwork and reporting being sexually assaulted by Mr. Cosby throughout his career. And it creates what can only be described as an absolute whirlwind of media attention. And then in December of 2015, most important to our discussion here today, and I would say to, to no great surprise to anyone, the uh, DA armed with now an unsealed transcript, as media, media reports have described it, of Cosby's deposition from back in that original lawsuit, the, the new DA of Montgomery County, Mr. Kevin Steele, decides to charge Cosby with sexually assaulting Constand just days before the 12-year statute of limitations was set to expire. Is that right? That is right. Okay. June 2017. So a couple years later, his first trial ends in a mistrial after jurors are deadlocked after six days of deliberation. Another year later, April of 2018, the retrial begins. And here, another point that's going to become pivotal, the judge will now allow five additional women to testify. And what's important to understand is they are not charged crimes, right? Not charged victims, but just additional witnesses who are testifying that they had similarly been assaulted by Mr. Cosby as to how Ms. Constant describes being assaulted. Um, this is something, and I don't want to get, I, I do want to interrupt because we're not done with the entire timeline, <laughs> but this was something that was, uh, remarkable to me because it's something that I deal with as a, uh, defense attorney a lot. And it's something I dealt with as a prosecutor, but explain to us how this is happening, that people who are uncharged, everybody understands you go on trial for what you're charged with. I'm facing charges. Here's the crime, but right. these are, these are uncharged acts that are being used and offered as evidence of, and here in California, they, they use it as evidence of propensity. In other words, I can say, he's done it before, folks. Look, he did it three or four times before in these uncharged crimes for whatever reason we can't charge them outside of the statute of limitations or not strong enough. But you can use those to say, well, then he must have done it here. Is that what they did? So in Pennsylvania, there is no statute that permits the admission of propensity evidence like you have in California and other states do have across the country. And, um, and frankly, there has been a lot of push and pull about whether or not propensity evidence uh, should be generally uh, excluded uh, from uh, admission of, you know, into, into evidence or there should be uh, exceptions when it should be allowed. Uh, there is, I think, historically, uh, a general rule that character evidence or bad character evidence, sometimes we call that propensity evidence, meaning because you did it before, it's more likely you did it again, that there is a general bar on that type of evidence because it's, it's, it's almost too persuasive, meaning we put too much on that. It may be relevant, but you, the average juror is just gonna put too much emphasis on that. And there can be, again, miscarriages of justice because you, the jurors are just, they, they're not listening to anything else at that point. So yeah. um, that is um, a rule that, but that in Pennsylvania, the, admission of other bad act evidence or propensity evidence is actually admitted as an exception to a general bar on propensity evidence. Okay, so with that, I guess, framework, um, we have a situation where I would say prosecutors frequently um, argue that the there are exceptions that have in ways swallowed the rule and that's what kind of happened in pennsylvania so they argued that uh well first of all let's start with the fact that the judge showed i think significant discretion at the first trial and only permitted one bad act or prior bad act witness uh, but as you could see that ended in a mistrial which we have discussed right same judge coming around on the mistrial right. too exactly okay. 
And then on a retrial, he decides to revisit the issue after the prosecution comes back and essentially says, we need this evidence. We need we need to bring in right. these uncharged allegations going back, some of them until the early 80s. I mean, oh, nearly 30 year old allegations. We need this to prove our case because Constance testimony is not getting it, the, getting it done on its own, which should tell you something about the value or the credibility that she had regarding her allegations. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So they said, we need this. The judge was sympathetic to that. And he permitted them to put in five witnesses um, who testified about other incidences, which frankly were not very similar um, to the allegations of misconduct. They were simply just allegations involving some type of sexual misconduct and some type of intoxicant. That was sort of the the, the similarity, which okay. I argued was not much of a similarity be, because we know that in acquaintance rape type situations, over 50 percent of them involve some type of misconduct and an intoxicant yeah. in some way. Yeah. So this was not particularly unique, if, if you understand what I'm saying. Um, so the judge allowed it. And. And Did he give a reason for why he changed his ruling from trial one to trial two? He never explained why he flip-flopped from one to two. Um, he just didn't. And and there was, uh, I think, before the appellate court, and I, I, I was not representing him in front of the uh, intermediary reviewing court, but um, there was a point made that, well, a judge can do that. And it is, of course, true. Judges can can change their minds about pretrial rulings like this on a retrial. There's no lack of just they, they have the discretion to do that. Sure. But often they will explain why. <laughs> and it would if, if the reason is, well, I really want the prosecution to win. That typically would probably <laughs> be perceived as an abuse of discretion. <laughs> Problematic is the word we Problematic. use. <laughs> exactly. Um, so but what ended up being, um, I believe, uh, I, I would say reversible error, notwithstanding the fact that his conviction was reversed on an entirely different issue. Yeah, I do believe I would I would stake uh, I would stake my I would say my kids' lives. That might be going too far, but I would definitely <laughs> <laughs> I would I would stake a lot on the fact that if we had not prevailed on the claim or the issue regarding the immunity deal that we would have still obtained a new trial as a result of the admission of prior bad act evidence. I, I argued the case in front of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, and I felt very strongly that that court was feeling this issue um, and that they were at least five of them, um, or I guess four of them, it's a seven, uh, seven person court, um, were in our favor. And that's because in the end, the prosecution tried to gussy up their 404B evidence or their prior bad act evidence and say, well, we're using it for this purpose, which is legitimate. It's a non-propensity purpose we're using it for. And they would give, they had a couple of exceptions that they identified. But at the end of the day, their logic never held up. And we always got back to the place, which was, you're really just using it to show bad character evidence. Yeah. Because, you know, I would explain it this way. The best use of 404B evidence is when you have, for instance, an unknown offender, okay? Yeah. There's yeah. been a, a, a series of, of sexual assaults or murders, if you will, that are very unique. Um, the offender, you know, uh, carves his initials or carves an X in, in victim's body at the end. And, and then you find a body and somebody's sort of um, caught and charged, and they want to demonstrate that he's responsible for these other murders. And he says, nope, it wasn't me. It wasn't me. And the prosecution says, no, we know it was you because you had the same exact modus operandi in the case that you are charged with as these other cases. Right. And the other evidence tells the jury that you can be confident that he's guilty of this charged offense because these other similar acts couldn't have been committed by anybody else. That is a proper use of other crimes evidence to yeah. show the identity. Whereas here, identity wasn't at issue. He, he alleged consent. Um, and so, you know, without getting too far down this path, the bottom line is, is the prosecutors really... Uh, again, tried to 
shoehorn this evidence in under exceptions that were not really applicable. Yeah. Yeah. And there was well, a lot of it. And there was yeah. a lot of it. <laughs> well, and, and to just kind of bookend your comments too, and I agree with everything you're saying, I, I you talk about how jurors seem to to latch onto it and kind of never let go. And what I have found is that if you have a a a a charged crime that may be weak and you add on these other prior uncharged acts, the jurors begin to, like you say, just kind of go into a haze and all they're thinking about is the question, what are the chances? Right. What are the chances that this could have happened not one time, not two times, but three, four, five times He's got to be guilty, and they're not—they're not trying to individually judge the 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 weight of the evidence on that particular charged crime. Yeah, that's right. They—they they, two things happen. I think that they do not examine the evidence of the charged offense with the level of scrutiny um, that they otherwise would, um, or they say, eh, even if he didn't do this one, he probably did the others. Why yeah. do I care? It's sort of a, uh, you know, ends justifies the means yeah. mentality. I'm, I'm dealing with a bad guy here anyways. Exactly. And yeah. then and then just just breeding contempt uh, for uh, the accused in a way that just prevents them from seeing anything but a but a monster sitting there, which yeah. never leads to you know good outcomes or I would say fair outcomes. Fair enough. Then getting back to April on our little timeline here, April of 2018, a jury this time uh, with that new evidence finds Mr. Cosby guilty of drugging and sexually assaulting Ms. Constant. September of that same year, a judge sentences Mr. Cosby to three to 10 years in prison and he's taken to jail. Flash forward from then to June of this year, three years into his prison sentence, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court decides that the sexual assault trial never should have happened in the first place. The justices, and correct me if I'm wrong, essentially say that Cosby's testimony, where he admitted that he gave drugs to women uh, in connection with any kind of sexual congress wisdom, was only given after the district attorney at that time promised not to cost, uh, prosecute him in that case um, and that never should have happened. And Cosby's right. 83 years old at the time of his release. So, right. and this is really where you you play the most pivotal role. So the, the question I have is going back from the beginning, how did you initially get involved with Mr. Cosby's case to begin with? So he had a number of lawyers along the way. Um, obviously there were two trials. The first one was a hung jury. He did switch trial teams uh, for the second jury. Then he had, um, he had attorneys in California, and as you may recall, he was sued a number of times in connection with defamation claims related to something his his previous lawyer made. There, you know, there was a lot of litigation going on. He had many, sure. many, many lawyers, and um, I was contacted um, uh, in, by lawyers associated with the civil cases and had asked me to get involved in part um, because of all the media attention. And um, and I have always been a big believer in embracing media or embracing maybe is a, is a, is a strong word, but accepting that we live in different times okay. um, and that uh, the, the old days of um, no comment, no comment, no comment, um, don't really work these days anymore now that sure. we have social media. And that, that, might, that might be troubling for defense attorneys, it is at times for me, but also that it might be an opportunity. And that the media was so hardened um, and uh, on one-sided against Mr. Cosby for so long. And obviously that has major impacts on jury pools. So I had been brought in kind of a, a to look at that aspect of the case. And then being an appellate attorney, I started getting involved um, more intimately after there was a loss in the appellate court there, the reviewing court. Um, his conviction uh, after the second trial was affirmed uh, by uh, the Pennsylvania um, appellate court. Um, and then- And were you involved at that point? I was I was involved, but I had no involvement in the writing um, of the briefs or the okay. argument. The case. I, I got involved when we sought leave 
to appeal to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court in what is known as um, an allocutor. Uh, that's what they call them in Pennsylvania. Different states call them different names. But what most states, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I, I imagine California is the same, that you have no automatic right to an appeal no. to the state's highest court. Um, so you have, you get, if you are convicted, you have one right, well, one, one appeal is a matter of right, and that's usually to an intermediary reviewing court. And then if you lose there, you can seek review by the state's highest court. They have no obligation to listen to your case. 98% of the time, they do not take your case. Absolutely. Um, and so I got involved in the uh at that stage when we were literally seeking review, which was, you know, it, that was a huge win in and of itself just yeah. to get reviewed by the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, which I think people don't quite understand. They think, oh, well, every case goes up that far. It's not no, that's that's a really important point that you make that it, 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 lawyers can go their entire career and never have a case taken up by the Supreme Court in their own state. Right. So for so for that to even happen, let alone to prevail, is pretty remarkable. Right. That was great. And and they don't have to take every issue. They don't have to look at the whole case. They can look, you know, they get to pick and choose what they want to review. And the Pennsylvania Supreme Court decided to look at two issues. They decided to look at the question of whether or not the prosecution should have happened in the first place because of uh, uh, an immunity agreement or alleged immunity agreement or, and the 404B. I, and I'm using that as shorthand for the admission of prior bad act evidence, which we right. discussed a little bit earlier. So they decided to look at both of those issues. And those were the two issues that we uh, raised in the briefs before the Pennsylvania Supreme Court ultimately argued. And then, yes, we ultimately prevailed on the immunity agreement issue, which not only resulted in a reversal of his conviction, but tossing out the whole case, the charges and discharging him from the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections. Yeah, incredible. Um, when you initially had the, it sounds like you were involved to some extent. So you weren't, it's not like you were completely unfamiliar with the case and the right. issues, but were the issues fairly straightforward to you when you first got the case? So when I, I did, you know, I read the entire record, obviously, even though we only ended up arguing these two issues and the immunity agreement was a very straightforward issue in the sense of, we knew it was going to be front and center in, in the briefs. It was litigated before the first trial in a full-blown evidentiary hearing where Bruce Castor came and testified uh, that, oh, wow. you know what, I, yes, we made it a deal. There was an agreement. I mean, literally, the, the, the district, Montgomery County District Attorney came and took the stand, took the oath and said, I made an agreement with Mr. Cosby through his criminal defense attorney at the time not to prosecute. I intended that to bind the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania into perpetuity. Wow. Um, so it wasn't like it was just Mr. Cosby's word. Sure. Uh, it was literally the... Um, prosecutor at the time or the DA at the time. Now, what's super interesting, which people don't know, this is a little salacious, but this might be the place for it, huh. um, is that this judge, the trial judge, Judge O'Neill and Bruce Castor had a contentious relationship that predated the Cosby case. They were political adversaries had a, having had run against each other for the position of Montgomery County District Attorney's Office. I love it. I love it. And in fact, it gets even more, uh, it gets more juicy in that there were allegations apparently made by Judge O'Neill against Judge Castor for exploiting an alleged extramarital affair that Judge O'Neill had in uh, the campaign that Judge O'Neill ultimately lost to become the district attorney. So without speaking to whether any of that is in fact true or what happened, what we do know is there was this relationship and Bruce Castor provided an affidavit uh, explaining this relationship. So, you know, it, it makes you wonder whether or not Judge O'Neill really should have been deciding this issue in the first place. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I love it. You can't write this stuff. I love it. I know. It just it's incredible. And it's stuff that, you know, the media wasn't really reporting. And I was like, wow, this is such great stuff. And this is something that's so interesting to me, too, because when I first, you know, I followed this when it was in the news and I followed the news reports and things like that. And when I found out about the, the Supreme Court's ruling, 
my initial reaction was, why wasn't this brought up before? Because it is an issue of should they even get to the courthouse steps? Right. Uh, why wasn't this something that prevented them from even bringing the case? And so it, it is It is enlightening for us to, to kind of give us the background that that was heavily litigated beforehand. Mm -hmm. And something for f folks to appreciate is that sometimes you are at the mercy of these judges and you may have the law on your side. And you obviously did. According to the highest court in that state, you had the law on your side. But you have to go through other judges who just may feel differently. And I'm not trying to throw any judges under the bus here, but right. they may just view the law differently. But you're at their mercy to the point that this man spent three years in prison when the Supreme Court says he never should have gone to trial in the first place. That's exactly right. We don't have the right to interlocutory appeals, generally speaking, as as defense attorneys um, or as defendants don't typically have that right. There are some rare occasions when they do in some states, but an interlock interlocutory appeal is where you can bring an appeal in, in the middle of the trial or before the, or even be really usually before you pick a jury and say, we need the reviewing court to review this decision uh, before we move forward. Um, the government has certain rights to interlocutory appeals that defend defendants don't typically have. So it wasn't as if after Judge O'Neill said, nope, this prosecution is going to move ahead, that Mr. Crosby had the right to say, wait, wait, before I am ear irretrievably, irredeemably prejudiced. Let me make sure that you got this right, Judge O'Neill, and I take my appeal to the uh, reviewing courts. He had no right to do that. He had to wait all those right. years. Uh, so right. yeah, that's that's something that people just didn't, you know, again, you don't expect the average person to know that, but it wasn't something that was um, discussed a lot. But yes, it was heavily litigated. It wasn't like, yeah, yeah I wish I could take credit for having some great, uh, <laughs> some big genius idea. But no, um, many attorneys before me knew that, that this was wrong. Yeah. Um, we just were able to uh, persuasively um, persuasively argue the case before Pen the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, which, by the way, it wasn't a close decision. Uh, it was Split decision. It well, it was, but when you actually look at the decision, um, there was only one dissent, and all of the other justices agreed that there was an agreement that had been violated. There was just a differing opinion about what the relief should be. Interesting. So four felt that he should be, the whole thing never should have happened, tossed out. An additional two thought that there was a Fifth Amendment violation in in so much as they introduced the deposition testimony and then he should get a new trial because of that um so and what they were saying is there there was a breach of an agreement um at, but we do think that there can be a trial so and then there was one dissent so it, it wasn't actually that close like in the it ultimately on the, on the issue of whether there was an agreement anyway. Interesting. Okay, so we, we've kind of touched around the edges of this, but let's get down to like actually what the issue was. I mean, the, sure. the Supreme Court said that District Attorney Kevin Steele, that the current DA, the one who charged Cosby, um, was obligated to stand by his predecessor's promise, who is Mr. Um, sorry, Katzer. you referenced Katzer, yes, um, and not charge Cosby. So tell us, how did that all work out? Why was he? Uh, why did the original DA agree not to prosecute him? What, what did that allow Cosby to do at the deposition? Why was that important? To spell the kind of flesh that all out for us. Yeah, sure. So, as you probably know, Josh, that as hard as it may be for people to believe, deals are cut in hallways of criminal court buildings, uh, in in chambers everything is not always done on the record, right? Um, it doesn't necessarily mean it's improper or unethical. It's just, we have very busy criminal justice systems and sometimes sure. there are agreements made and they're not always memorialized the way um, perhaps they should be. And right. certainly Cosby's case, that that is. So Bruce Castor um, was, uh, 
the Montgomery County District Attorney's Office in 2005, when Ms. Constant eventually came forward and lodged her allegation against Mr. Cosby. And you are correct, as you pointed out earlier, at least a year had elapsed from the alleged incident. Incident, She had maintained a relationship with Mr. Cosby. Um, they talked regularly. She went to uh, at least one of his comedy shows. She brought her parents to one of his comedy shows. Uh, she um, uh, did not outcry or disclose that he had assaulted her to anyone. Interesting. Um, uh, that even her mother, who she was allegedly very close to, she did not make an immediate outcry or even really an outcry close in time. And while, I, you know, listen, we all understand that sexual assault survivors sometimes don't disclose for any number of reasons or don't go to the hospital or don't do those things. Um, this was a little abnormal or a little unusual, given the fact that she was not a teenager. She was a, a woman, I believe, you know, I think 30 years old. You know, she was a grown woman, professional woman. And she waited an awful long time before she told anybody, um, which as a prosecutor, I'm sure you recognize that putting a, a ju personal judgment aside, it makes it difficult to yeah. prove those types of cases. Absolutely. And Bruce Castor had the, the case was investigated by, I think, two different law enforcement agencies. I think and I always get this wrong. Shelton Ham, the, 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 the local municipality um, where uh, Mr. Cosby's um, Pennsylvania home. Um, was uh, situated, as well as, I believe, investigators from the Montgomery County District Attorney's Office investigated the case. And ultimately, Castor concluded that we can't prove it beyond a reasonable doubt, or I am not convinced we can. Um, and that's really the standard that prosecutors often view a case not by. Not by, do I have probable cause to arrest, but, but can I win this case? Absolutely. Um, you're the former prosecutor, not me. But I, I do think that is not uncommon. And no, absolutely. Made, they they should be. Sorry to cut you off, but they should no, be seeing seeing every case as can I win this in court? I mean, that's we don't want to be wasting time charging people with folks with cases where we know that if we actually put twelve people in a box, we're going to lose. So that's that should be at least the way that they practice. And that I think was Castor's. Um, reasoning. Now, a lot of people have criticized that in hindsight, saying, oh, well, that's just because at the times we just don't believe rape survivors. We don't you know, we don't believe women. And, you know, I'm not I am not here to um, dispute the history of people believing women um, or not believing women. Um, I think I, I don't think it's really in dispute. Of course, women have historically been questioned about whether or not their allegations are true. Uh, but in the context of a criminal prosecution, there are just certain realities. There are rules of evidence. There are people, jurors come with sets of beliefs that come from cultural background. That is just the reality of the criminal justice system. And, you know, you can't change cultural views right. and historical views overnight. So prosecutors have to look with a, an eye towards, can I win the case? And I think Castor said, no, I don't think I can win this case given some of these, uh, I guess some of these areas of impeachment or some areas that, that will be subject to challenge by Mr. Cosby's attorneys. And he made a decision and again, people take issue with this, that this is a case that because the burden of proof is lower in the civil arena, that a better course of action, action is for her to sue in the civil courts. The burden of proof is lower. Um, and there, if, if, if it turns out that her allegations have some merit, she will get uh, some semblance of justice there. And he really encouraged the parties to take it in that direction. And he did so um, publicly. He did so with a press release. He did so stating, you know, this is the avenue I think they should pursue. And also, I say that because he does not risk prosecution here in this 
Montgomery County in the state of Pennsylvania, that he does not enjoy a Fifth Amendment right to remain silent, and he needs to participate in that civil process. You're he, saying Castor made that made that kind of a public he, statement at the time. He he made um, I, I so he made that statement. He testified to that. Yeah. Um, during the criminal trial, um, he basically said in the press release um, uh, that, and I think he does mention the civil proceedings in the press release. Wow. Uh, but it was it was made very clear to the parties, including Ms. Constance, Constance's civil attorney, who she hired immediately. I think she hired a civil attorney before even there were any decisions made about um uh, ultimately, the prosecution, don't quote me on that, but she had a civil attorney very early in the process. And she um, so it was that was, you know, an understood uh, it was an understanding between all the parties. Sure. And so people said, well, why wasn't it memorialized in some type of written agreement? Well, it should have been. Let me just let me just come out and say yeah, that you're, 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 a, a better course of action. You're kind of stealing my thunder because <laughs> that was one of my big questions is what you know what i mean like i you make a very good point about like listen do, do, a lot of this is kind of hallway dealings and handshakes and everything else and we i get that and i've been a part of it and i understand it but you're not dealing with you're right. dealing with bill cosby right, right? And, <laughs> and i'm not trying to throw lawyers back in the day under the bus but the fact that this wasn't in writing is mind-blowing to me it is it is. And that was something we conceded in front of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court where they had a lot of questions about like, wow, like really like this just defies. Yeah. And it's even worse. It's even worse. It wasn't even put on the record on the deposition. So um, does he waive his Fifth Amendment rights on the deposition? Well, he testifies. So. <laughs> wow. Um, wow. And expla uh, explain that a little bit to folks, too, that the reason why he needed to be granted this immunity from the DA is because he maintained a Fifth Amendment right and didn't have to participate in that process, right? That's exactly right. And it, it is that precise argument that I hammered away at uh, in the oral arguments to say, you're right, there should have been a written agreement. But the best evidence that we have that this deal was made was the fact that he did not invoke Right. When I say invoke, I mean, he did not exercise his Fifth Amendment right to remain silent. And I have the benefit of having civil experience. I have had clients who are suing police officers, for example, police brutality and have pending cases in other matters. And when they sit for a deposition as the plaintiff in a, in a police brutality case, for instance, the officer's attorneys want, of course, a question my client about maybe a pending case. And I invoke his Fifth Amendment right, right. in the civil case. Say, no, you, he's not answering questions about that. He's not answering questions about that. It is. And of course, you know, there that can create problems down the line. But I think the best evidence that there was an agreement was the fact that his civil attorneys who were who, who by one of whom testified at the criminal trial said, I spoke to his criminal defense attorney. It was my understanding there was going to be no criminal prosecution. I told him he had to testify, and so he did. Okay. Um, again, uh, I, I do think someone dropped the ball. I do not. Yeah. I'm not. I'm not going to act as if this was uh, the way it should have gone down. Right. Definitely shouldn't have gone down this way. Right. But I do. I, I was confident that what is more mind blowing than the fact that there was no agreement is that somebody would sit for a deposition if there was going to be a criminal case still that's a really good point that's a really good point yeah <laughs> that's even more mind-blowing yeah so. that's a that's a really good point and i think uh, i think the justices bought that yeah well explain to us too the and the reason why uh, uh caster gave him this immunity agreement or or promise not to prosecute or whatever you want to call it was to free him up so that he could testify because that would benefit constant right That's right i mean that is that is essentially what caster testified to and he made him very clear during his testimony listen i'm not on cosby's side right i'm not i'm not his buddy i'm uh but i made a reasoned decision at the time that uh because i could not or i did not believe that i could get a conviction that 
I had an alternative idea and whether that was his place or not, people can disagree with, but he had the view that an alternative way for her to get some semblance of justice was through the civil uh, process. And we know that if he has the possibility of being charged criminally, he's never going to testify or participate in this process. So I am going to say unequivocally that I will um, we will not be prosecuting him. Um, he did so obviously in conversations with uh, Cosby's attorneys, but he says he did it in a press release. Of course, you know, during the trial uh, and the hearings that pre the hearings on this issue, there was a lot of a lot of dispute about what the press release really meant. Um, you would think that the author of the press release would be given deference on that. But O'Neill was very suspicious. And I, I provided maybe one reason why he was suspicious earlier. But even that aside, he was suspicious that Castor intended to even um, intended to make an agreement uh, that would bind future prosecutions or whether even he even could. Now, these are kind of all kind of issues that were not real, really resolved. Um, in the law, I mean, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court has made it very clear now. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, and we we pursued a a, a promissory estoppel uh, argument that, huh. um, which is a contract principle that sometimes yeah. does apply in criminal cases, saying, you know, it was a promise that was made. Whether he could make the promise or not, Mr. Cosby relied on it to his detriment, yeah. and it should be honored. Yeah. Uh, but ultimately, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court went even, you know, they 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 found an agreement um, was entered into. Interesting. Uh, yeah. Interesting. This case is <laughs> got controversy dripping all over it. Um, and, and one of the things that this is a conversation that started with folks is should these NDAs, these confidentiality agreements, uh, these, you know, promises not to prosecute, to allow uh, uh, you know, maybe men of privilege, they would argue to get away with bad acts by just kind of paying off folks. Should any of that be allowed? It's kind of a, a, an overall conversation that folks would be having. And I, I want to hear your thoughts on this. But one thing I do want to point out is that this case points out how if it weren't for the ability to grant immunity here or whatever you want to call it, and if it weren't for the ability to enter into a confidentiality agreement, Ms. Constant never would have had the opportunity to seek or, or and I believe was awarded damages in a civil case. And so she would have le been left with nothing at that point. Can you, can you right. talk more about that? So, yes. So immunity agreements, and as a pro former prosecutor, I, um, I am sure you know this, the government relies on them extensively to get bad guys. Yes. Um, and when I say bad guys, I'm more talking about like in criminal enterprises where you have people at the top of a, a, a pyramid or a, the, the, the big mob bosses. Um, and, and in order to get those guys, you have to use the little guys um, to give testimony against them. And yeah. in order to do so, you have to give reassurances and sometimes immunity agreements to those guys in order to get the really bad guys. Yeah. So um, they are used frequently. I personally think they're probably overused, but you know, um, it is part and parcel of our criminal justice process. It wasn't just pulled out for Bill Cosby. It was something that was that is used routinely in our criminal justice system. So that's a that is something that I want to make clear. And there's good reason to use them. Sometimes prosecutors cannot prove their cases without the cooperation of certain witnesses. And in order to get the cooperation of those witnesses, they need to give immunity. So immunity deals exist. Now, um, you were 100% right. At the time in 2005, when Ms. Constance um, claims were being investigated and Bruce Castor had decided that he did not believe that he could win a prosecution and was not going to proceed with one, if he had just said, you know what, we're not going to prosecute, and Ms. Constant had tried to at that point sued, 
Mr. Cosby certainly would have invoked his Fifth Amendment rights, because if he doesn't have any assurances that he's not going to be prosecuted in the future and 10 years of a statute of limitations is a long 10 years. uh, And, you know, the winds can winds can change, as we know very well, he wouldn't have testified. And then she would not have even received any. She wouldn't have received relief in the civil courts, uh, which was a significant amount of relief. Uh, So, again, you know, there was this wasn't just like you know, Bill Cosby bought his way out of trouble. That is, I think, a, a nice um, talking point that people like to to use in the media. Right. right. But it is much more nuanced than that. It's more complex, and uh, I take I take issue with it. Uh, he 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 did not buy his way out of trouble. Um, and there, you know, Castor. You know, I've I've seen the discovery. There was an investigation done. And I don't think Castor would have been the only prosecutor who would have declined to prosecute that claim back in 2005. Interesting. Okay. Well, that kind of leads me to, to one of my next questions is that, um, you know, this case from when he would, the first, the allegations came out till when he was charged. I mean, this became the poster child for this, this hashtag me too movement that right. we've come to know it as. Right. Um, when he got released, same kind of, you know, reaction from folks what 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 do you say to people um who are now so upset by his release i have a couple things to say i say first of all you know take your take your um issues and anger and direct them at kevin Steele. okay that's where they belong i'm sorry that um you believe somehow that there should have been a I guess, in a, a Bill Cosby exception to the Fifth Amendment in our U.S. Constitution. Uh, but uh, if you took issue uh, with all of this, you should have you should take issue with Kevin Steele for having violated the agreement in the first place. Or if you believe that Bill uh, that Castor should should have charged Bill Cosby back in 2005. Well, then, you know, I guess take your issues up with with Castor. Uh, But it is not Bill Cosby's defense uh, attorney's um, job to also to to prosecute their own client. You know, we're here to Make sure the Constitution works for him, which in turn then means it works for other people. And I, I you know, I, the, I kind of get a little irked about it, but, you know, I'd like to say you're welcome. Uh, you know, you, this Constitution yeah. can't just work for who you decide it works for. Yeah. Um, yeah. It has to work for all of us. And the minute we decide that because of hashtag movements, um, it, there should be some different set of rules. Yeah. Uh, we're, 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 we're not. We're, that's China. You know, right. you want to go to China, right. go to China, because right. that is really not what our criminal justice system is all about. Yeah. You know, I read an article in The Atlantic about how Me Too had made, you know, Me Too had made progress in so many areas, except in the courtrooms. And I was like, well, first of all, it shouldn't be making progress in the courtrooms. That's not, yeah. you know, the courtrooms is not a place to be hashing out, no pun intended, um, these cultural shifts, yes. which may be very good for us as a society long term, but we can't just we can't just, again, bend rules of evidence, rules of procedure and certainly not our constitutional principles and be outcome oriented because now we are more enlightened um, in our everyday life. Um, that happens slowly. It happens with, you know, and, you know, we just, you know, they wanted and a lot of these people are I, I find amusing. A lot of the people that were angriest were the the defund the police types and the and the and the abolition of prison people. And it's like, well, how do you think abolition of prisons works? You think there's just a special little prison for R. Kelly and uh, Bill Cosby and Harvey right. Weinstein? Right. Um, you know, this is this is, um, you know. Uh, so I, I, I think that um, people have to understand that Me Too has done some good things. I, I believe they've done some good things. I, I have daughters. We have a lot of discussions about it. I have a son. We have a lot of discussions about it. And um, But the courtroom is, should not become a forum for women who, for whatever reasons, didn't press their claims. It, shouldn't be, it doesn't become about them. 
And I know that they really believe that it should be about them, but it's not. It's about the accused in a courtroom. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that maybe is hard to hear, but those are the facts. That is the process by yeah. which we take people's freedoms away. And we have to keep our eye on the ball, which is the accused and making sure his or her rights are safeguarded through that entire process. Yeah, was well, so well put. And and something you had touched on earlier that the prosecutors have a difficult job and there's a lot of things that they should be considering when they're making a determination of whether or not to file criminal charges, the weight of the evidence, the 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 veracity of a witness, the credibility of people involved. But one thing they should not be considering is what kind of political statement am I making with this? Whether that's to charge someone because you feel it might be politically advantageous or to not charge someone. Um, and so I, I, I completely agree with everything you're saying that is as difficult as it is for some s- folks to swallow. The last place we want politics to start playing a role is inside of our criminal justice system. Right. And, you yeah. know, at, some people don't realize this, but Kevin Steele literally campaigned on the idea of bringing Bill Cosby. Oh, uh, wow. File. So, you wow. know, uh, it, 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 I think that was I think that was a problem. Yeah. No, sounds like it. Um, okay, so what what does this mean for Mr. Cosby's future now? Like, is this the end of it for him? Um, I, I you know I would like to believe so, but I, not necessarily. Um, so he has a pending civil matter. Okay, that is actually pending in LA County. Okay, um, and the Santa Monica courthouse. Uh, in which he is accused of a sexual battery. Um, he's essentially accused, and I'm going to summarize here of. And either, to be clear, this is a civil case we're talking about, not criminal. A civil case, yeah. but as you know, some intentional torts uh, bear a great deal of resemblance uh, to criminal um, charges or criminal offenses, and in this case, there is um, a claim that he had. Um, fondled her or her had sexually abused her, touched her in a way that was um, uh, amounted to a sexual battery. And he is being sued for that. Now, the allegation is from 1974. So it is a very old, old allegation. And you say, wait a second, how can somebody bring that claim uh, what is it, almost a half century later? Isn't sure. there a statute of limitations? Well, there is, except the plaintiff in the matter, uh, whose name is Judy Huss, has alleged that uh, this incident occurred in the Playboy Mansion when she was underage. Um, she had just met Mr. Cosby, according to her complaint. Um, and that he had invited her to the Playboy Mansion. Again, these are her allegations um, that have not been proven. And that there was some incident that happened and that um, she did not bring these claims forward. Um, well, until I think after that co- comedy show that you mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I, I, I think... Um, Oh, and I, I lost my train of thought there for a second. But uh, what allows her to bring these claims now at this juncture is that California has a very, very uh, gracious um, statute of limitations for crimes, sex, sex assault crimes or sex abuse crimes, I'll call them, uh, that are being lodged by people who were minors at the time. In yes. fact, at the moment, Um, I think in 2020, California passed an amendment that essentially opened a window for anyone who had been the victim of some type of childhood sexual abuse to bring their claim, no matter how old, whether it was five days old or five, 50 years old um, in this window of time. Um, And uh, so that is a provision that is allowing her to bring this claim, um, okay. which I think raises a lot of constitutional implications in and of itself. I was going to say you're you're representing him in that case. I am, okay. and we are going to be challenging that that look back window, okay. uh, which is uh, what they call it in California, and we have the same thing in New York too. By the way, it's not just California that has this. 
Well, and then I got to ask, aren't the same kind of Fifth Amendment issues going to revisit themselves in this one? They aren't they are. going to be asking for depositions of Mr. Cosby? They are eagerly. Um, Ms. Huff is represented by Gloria Allred, who I'm sure you know is very um, active in the yes. Cosby litigation. Um, uh, she and her daughter uh, have, in fact, I think they recently, after he was released, came forward and said, you know, any accusers, it's time to come out now. Um, I think Lisa Bloom made some some comment of that nature, which, you know, it, you know, it raises issues that we, we it's the elephant in the room that Mr. Cosby is a high target individual. And, um, you know, it is, I think, offensive in, and infantilizing of women to suggest that women are not capable of of being untruthful. Uh, you know, I'm not saying all women lie. I'm not saying anything of that nature, but it's not like it's outside the realm of possibility. I do a lot of wrongful conviction work that was based on women who gave untruthful testimony and men too. Um, so it's, we're not, we're, we're not that, we're not that virtuous uh, as a, as a, as a uh, sex. So, uh, you know, inviting women and encouraging them to come forward, um, you know, uh, I think it has has a possibility of bringing out women who may or may not. Um, they may be incentivized um, in other ways. Uh, so and and that leads me to a long winded response to your question is absolutely. He still has Fifth Amendment issues um, to contest with. Um, there are some states in the in this country that have no statute of limitations for uh, crimes involving sexual abuse or sexual assault. Um, this was a man who had a long career, who traveled all over. Um, and that's not to say that um, I am concerned that he has any legitimate claims that could be lodged against him. But he was maliciously prosecuted once. <laughs> right. It could happen again. You know, right. It was an illegal prosecution that happened in Pennsylvania. It's not as if that could not repeat itself. Um Another issue, if you for you know, if you're a federal prosecutor, um, we just saw the conclusion of R. Kelly's trial, where under a RICO conspiracy theory, uh, the federal government has brought um, sex abuse case claims that could not stand alone, but because it's brought under the RICO statute, um, their statute of limitations, you know, uh, don't necessarily apply in those contexts. So. There is a lot to be worried about. And again, I am not worried because I believe Mr. Cosby has a legitimate um, risk. And when I say legitimate, I, you know, I, I think if everything was fair and square, he'd be fine. But I am concerned that there might be uh, additional prosecutions that could be brought that could be unlawful, that could be um, and, and also that could be decades old where. How would you how do you defend against allegations that are 50 years old? Right. I mean, Ms. Huff does not remember when this happened. If she doesn't remember, do you think it's easy for my client to say, well, I know it didn't happen that day because I was here. Or I was right. there. He might right. very well be able to do that. But if the, if the plaintiff can't even identify the date on which something happened, it makes it a lot more difficult to defend. Yeah. Well, we look forward to seeing you in court on that one as well. Yeah. I'll give you the last word uh, here. What, how was this important to you? Why was it important to you to help defend and eventually uh, uh, free Mr. Cosby? So I, I'm glad you asked me that. I have always taken cases that I believe in. And when I say I believe in, uh, you know, people have at times said, oh, defense attorneys just in up for the money. I, I can I can promise you if you look at my business plan, it makes no sense whatsoever. <laughs> I, I, I have a practice that is predominantly pro bono on the criminal side and uh, and contingency based, meaning I only make money on the civil side when I win. Um, and that has been my career for two decades. Um, and I take cases where I believe there has been a miscarriage of justice. I believe cases where I, I take cases where I believe someone has been wrongfully convicted. And I take cases where I believe the government has run amok. And um, certainly in Mr. Cosby's case, I believe that there had been a miscarriage of justice by virtue of the fact that the government brought a prosecution 
that should not have been brought in the first place and also um, played unfairly during that prosecution by introducing excessive amounts of this other crimes evidence. And I think we have a trend right now when you're looking at these other high profile cases. I, I did some work on Mr. Weinstein's case. Um, I consulted on that case. I was not his attorney of record, but the amount of other crimes evidence that was introduced in the New York case was overwhelming. I, I don't even, you may as well just be stringing people up um, behind the courthouse if you're going to try people that way. And to me, that is dangerous. Um, it is, it's all fine and well when the public thinks that that person is someone they don't like, but wait to, you know, the government does have the capacity to turn their attentions to who they decide they don't like. And you may not yes. agree when that happens. So I, I believe that being a check on that process and the check on the government is important work, even if it means uh, do, getting relief for people that perhaps are unpopular or in the eyes of the public. So that's what inspired me and I'm gonna continue doing it. Well, good for you and extremely well said. Um, that is our show for this week. Jennifer, thank you so much for coming on. Where can people find out more about you? So you can certainly find out about me from my website. Uh, I am at um, www.bonjeanlaw.com. I also have um, an Instagram account, a Bonjean Law Instagram account. I have some wonderful um, millennial associate and paralegals who work for me who maintain that. I am not particularly savvy <laughs> uh, with the social media. So we are on Instagram. We are on Facebook. I have my own Twitter account, um, uh, Jennifer Bonjean. Uh, that I sometimes post on. So um, I'm there. Uh, I, I wish I could do more of that. We actually tried to do some TikTok stuff. I'm like, I'm I like, like it. this is too time consuming. Cutting I don't know edge. anybody <laughs> who can Cutting actually edge. practice law and do this. So anyway, uh, w that's where you can find out about our work. And I, I, I thank anyone who's interested too. Fantastic. Uh, Fantastic. And I'm your host, Joshua Ritter. You can find me and please follow me on Instagram at Joshua Ritter ESQ. You can find our sidebar episodes wherever you get your podcasts and on our YouTube channel. And thank you for joining us at the sidebar. <laughs>